Book Three, Chapters Four and Five of On the Education of an Orator by Quintilian, translated by H. E. Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four. There is, however, a dispute as to whether there are three kinds or more. But it is quite certain that all the most eminent authorities among ancient writers, following Aristotle, who merely substituted the term public for deliberative, have been content with the threefold division. Still, a feeble attempt has been made by certain Greeks and by Cicero in his De Oratore to prove that there are not merely more than three, but that the number of kinds is almost past calculation and this view has almost been thrust down our throats by the greatest authority of our own times. Indeed, if we place the task of praise and denunciation in the third division, on what kind of oratory are we to consider ourselves to be employed, when we complain, console, pacify, excite, terrify, encourage, instruct, explain obscurities, narrate, plead for mercy, thank, congratulate, reproach, abuse, describe, command, retract, express our desires and opinions, to mention no other of the many possibilities. As an adherent of the older view, I must ask for indulgence, and must inquire what was the reason that led earlier writers to restrict a subject of such variety to such narrow bounds those who think such authorities in error hold that they were influenced by the fact that these three subjects practically exhausted the range of ancient oratory for it was customary to write panegyrics and denunciations and to deliver funeral orations while the greater part of their activities was devoted to the law courts and deliberative assemblies as a result they say the old writers of textbooks only included those kinds of oratory which were most in vogue. The defenders of antiquity point out that there are three kinds of audience, one which comes simply for the sake of getting pleasure, a second which meets to receive advice, a third to give judgment on causes. In the course of a thorough inquiry into the question, it has occurred to me that the tasks of oratory must either be concerned with the law courts or with themes lying outside the law courts. The nature of the questions into which inquiry is made in the courts is obvious. As regards those matters which do not come before a judge, they must necessarily be concerned either with the past or the future. We praise or denounce past actions. We deliberate about the future. Again, everything on which we have to speak must be either certain or doubtful. We praise or blame what is certain, as our inclination leads us. On the other hand, where doubt exists, in some cases we are free to form our own views, and it is here that deliberation comes in, while in others we leave the problem to the decision of others, and it is on these that litigation takes place. Anaximenes regarded forensic and public oratory as genera, but held that there were seven species, exhortation, dissuasion, praise, denunciation, accusation, defense, inquiry, or, as he called it, 
excetasticon. The first two, however, clearly belong to deliberative, the next to demonstrative, the three last to forensic oratory. I say nothing of Protagoras, who held that oratory was to be divided only into the following heads. Question and answer, command and entreaty, or, as he calls it, eukhole. Plato, in his sophist, in addition to public and forensic oratory, introduces a third kind, which he styles prosomiletike, which I will permit myself to translate by conversational. This is distinct from forensic oratory, and is adapted for private discussions, and we may regard it as identical with dialectic. Isocrates held that praise and blame find a place in every kind of oratory. The safest and most rational course seems to be to follow the authority of the majority. There is then, as I have said, one kind concerned with praise and blame, which, however, derives its name from the better of its two functions, and is called laudatory. Others, however, call it demonstrative. Both names are believed to be derived from the Greek, in which the corresponding terms are encomiastic and epidatic. The term epidatic seems to me, however, to imply display rather than demonstration, and to have a very different meaning from encomiastic. For although it includes laudatory oratory, it does not confine itself thereto. Will any one deny the title of epidatic to panegyric? But yet panegyrics are advisory in form, and frequently discuss the interests of Greece. We may therefore conclude that, while there are three kinds of oratory, all three devote themselves in part to the matter at hand, and in part to display. But it may be that Romans are not borrowing from Greek when they apply the term demonstrative, but are merely led to do so because praise and blame demonstrate the nature of the object with which they are concerned. The second kind is deliberative the third, forensic oratory. All other species fall under these three genera. You will not find one in which we have not to praise or blame, to advise or dissuade, to drive home or refute a charge, while conciliation, narration, proof, exaggeration, extenuation, and the molding of the minds of the audience by exciting or allaying their passions are common to all three kinds of oratory. I cannot even agree with those who hold that laudatory subjects are concerned with the question of what is honorable, deliberative with the question of what is expedient, and forensic with the question of what is just. The division thus made is easy and neat rather than true, for all three kinds rely on the mutual assistance of the other, for we deal with justice and expediency in panegyric and with honor in deliberations, while you will rarely find a forensic case, in part of which, at any rate, something of those questions just mentioned is not to be found. Chapter 5. Every speech, however, consists at once of that which is expressed and that which expresses, that is to say, of matter and words. Skill in speaking is perfected by nature, art and practice, to which some add a fourth department, namely, 
imitation, which I, however, prefer to include under art. There are also three aims which the orator must always have in view. He must instruct, move, and charm his hearers. This is a clearer division than that made by those who divide the task of oratory into that which relates to things and that which concerns the emotions, since both of these will not always be present in the subjects which we shall have to treat. For some themes are far from calling for any appeal to the emotions, which, although room cannot always be found for them, produce a most powerful effect wherever they do succeed in forcing their way. The best authorities hold that there are some things in oratory which require proof, and others which do not, a view with which I agree. Some, on the other hand, as for instance Celsus, think that the orator will not speak on any subject unless there is some question involved in it. But the majority of writers on rhetoric are against him, as is also the threefold division of oratory, unless indeed to praise what is allowed to be honorable and to denounce what is admittedly disgraceful are no part of an orator's duty. It is, however, universally agreed that all questions must be concerned either with something that is written or something that is not. Those concerned with what is written are questions of law. Those which concern what is not written are questions of fact. Hermagoras calls the latter rational questions, the former legal questions, for so we may translate logikon and nomikon, those who hold that every question concerns either things or words mean much the same. It is also agreed that questions are either definite or indefinite. Indefinite questions are those which may be maintained or impugned without reference to persons, time or place, and the like. The Greeks call them theses, Cicero, propositions, others, general questions relating to civil life, others again questions suited for philosophical discussion while athenaeus calls them parts of a cause cicero distinguishes two kinds the one concerned with knowledge the other with action thus is the world governed by providence is a question of knowledge while should we enter politics is a question of action the first involves three questions whether a thing is what it is and of what nature for all these things may be unknown the second involves two how to obtain power and how to use it definite questions involve facts persons time and the like the greeks call them hypotheses while we call them causes in these the whole question turns on persons and facts an indefinite question is always the more comprehensive since it is from the indefinite question that the definite is derived. I will illustrate what I mean by an example. The question, should a man marry, is indefinite. The question, should Cato marry, is definite, and consequently may be regarded as a subject for a deliberative theme. But even those which have no connection with particular persons are generally given a specific reference. For instance, the question, ought we to take a share in the government of our country, is abstract, 
whereas ought we to take part in the government of our country under the sway of a tyrant has a specific reference but in this latter case we may say that a person is tacitly implied for the mention of a tyrant doubles the question and there is an implicit admission of time and quality but all the same you would scarcely be justified in calling it a cause or definite question those questions which i have styled indefinite are also called general if this is correct we shall have to call definite questions special questions but in every special question the general question is implicit since the genus is logically prior to the species and perhaps even in actual causes wherever the notion of quality comes into question there is a certain intrusion of the abstract milo killed claudius he was justified in killing one who lay in wait for him does this raise the general question as to whether we have the right to kill a man who lies in wait for us what again of conjectures may not they be of a general character as for instance what was the motive for the crime hatred covetousness or are we justified in believing confessions made under torture or which should carry greater weight evidence or argument as for definitions everything that they contain is undoubtedly of a general nature there are some that hold that even those questions which have reference to persons and particular cases may at times be called theses provided only they are put slightly differently for instance if orestes be accused we shall have a cause whereas if it is put as question namely was orestes rightly acquitted it will be a thesis to the same class as this last belongs the question was cato right in transferring marcia to hortensius these persons distinguish a thesis from a cause as follows a thesis is theoretical in character while a cause has relation to actual facts since in the former case we argue merely with a view to abstract truth while in the latter we have to deal with some particular act some however think that general questions are useless to an orator since no profit is to be derived from proving that we ought to marry or to take part in politics if we are prevented from so doing by age or ill health but not all general questions are liable to this kind of objection for instance questions such as is virtue an end in itself or is the world governed by providence cannot be countered in this way further in questions which have reference to a particular person although it is not sufficiently merely to handle the general question we cannot arrive at any conclusion on the special point until we have first discussed the general question for how is cato to deliberate whether he personally is to marry unless the general question whether marriage is desirable is first settled and how is he to deliberate whether he should marry marcia only it is proved that it is the duty of cato to marry there are however certain books attributed to hermagoras which support this erroneous opinion though whether the attribution is spurious or whether they were written by another hermagoras is an open question for they cannot possibly be by the famous hermagoras who wrote so much 
that was admirable on the art of rhetoric, since, as is clear from the first book of the Rhetorica of Cicero, he divided the material of rhetoric into theses and causes. Cicero objects to this division, contends that theses have nothing to do with an orator, and refers all this class of questions to the philosophers. But Cicero has relieved me of any feeling of shame that I might have in controverting his opinion, since he has not only expressed his disapproval of his rhetorica, but in the orator, the de oratore, and the topica, instructs us to abstract such discussions from particular persons and occasions, because we can speak more fully on general than on special themes, and because what is proved of the whole must also be proved of the part. In all general questions, however, the essential basis is the same as in a cause or definite question. It is further pointed out that there are some questions which concern things in themselves, while others have a particular reference. An example of the former will be the question, should a man marry, of the latter, should an old man marry, or again the question whether a man is brave will illustrate the first, while the question whether he is braver than another will exemplify the second. Apollodorus defines a cause in the following terms. I quote the translation of his pupil, Valgius. A cause is a matter which in all its parts bears on the question at issue. Or again, a cause is a matter of which the question in dispute is the object. He then defines a matter in the following terms. A matter is a combination of persons, circumstances of place and time, motives, means, incidents, acts, instruments, speeches, the letter, and the spirit of the law. Let us then understand a cause in the sense of the Greek hypothesis, or subject, and a matter in the sense of the Greek peristasis, or collection of circumstances. But some, however, have defined a cause in the same way that Apollodorus defines a matter. Isocrates, on the other hand, defines a cause as some definite question concerned with some point of civil affairs or a dispute in which definite persons are involved, while Cicero uses the following words. A cause may be known by its being concerned with certain definite persons, circumstances of time and place, actions and business, and will relate either to all, or at any rate, to most of these. End of chapter 5